Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg to talk about the coming elections and the fascization of America. Be back in just a few seconds. Please don't forget the donate button. Uh, we can't do this without you. Before we begin with Dan and Noam, uh, I want to play a couple of minutes from a short film called A Night at the Garden. I, I played this whole film at the end of a recent Wilkerson interview, but if, in case you didn't see it, it's, it's a chilling reminder of uh, the uh, forces of fascism that dwell deep within the American uh, psyche and body politic. So here's a few seconds from A Night, a night at the Garden. I pledge undivided allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Ladies and gentlemen, Fellow Americans, American patriots, I'm sure I do not come before you tonight as a complete stranger. You all have heard of me through the Jewish-controlled press as a creature with horns, a cloven hoof, and a long tail. We with American ideals, demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. If you ask what we are actively fighting for under our charter, first, a social, just, white, Gentile who rules United States. Second, Gentile-controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow-directed domination. Now joining us to talk about the upcoming elections in the United States, and the threat of rising fascism in the United States is Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me again. Thank you. You've talked in the past with me and uh, with others about just how what's at stake. I know in, in the last interview we did, uh, we did a, a, a we haven't published it yet, but it was about the American drone program and the, and the whistleblower who exposed those. Uh, Daniel Hale. And, and the Democrats have been as involved in this uh, uh, barbaric drone program as the Republican ha Republicans have, uh, which is partly an argument some people make that in this upcoming election, once again, to, to vote for the Democrats just to stop the Republicans is to do little to send a message about how terrible U.S. foreign policy is now. So I know, I mean, I don't think there's been much of a bigger critic of U.S. foreign policy than you, including of the Democrats. So how do you balance these things? 
That's a very well-constructed question, Paul. Um, in fact, let me start by saying something that we hear very much uh, from third-party candidates, especially Green candidates, people, my, my buddies, progressives, um, that there isn't that much difference between the parties. When you look at foreign policy uh, and defense budget and intervention in general, there actually isn't that much difference. That's That part is true. To focus only on that, you would have to conclude it doesn't make much difference which comes. This is an empire and presidents to be serious candidates for president uh, are, are running to be managers of an empire. I'm not sure they all realize that before they get to the White House, but it doesn't take them very long in the Oval Office to understand that's what they were elected for. And uh, they follow pretty much the same policies. So in terms of the extremely important matters of war and peace and uh, and this uh, fantastic uh, drain, you can call it that, a trillion dollar expenditure a year on arms, that most of which make us less secure. Uh, in that situation, I don't think it's possible to say that one party is better than the other or less bad than the other. That's incredibly untrue on the domestic side and on the matter of climate, which affects the whole globe. People who are reluctant to say that the Republican Party is any worse than the Democrats on these domestic side, on the issues of uh, many issues of uh, uh, climate in particular, which is hard to define even as a domestic issue, but um, racism, misogyny, uh, tribalism, nationalism, militarism. Again, I have to say the militarism, there isn't that much difference. But on these other matters, it's uh, night and day. And uh, I would say that someone who says it doesn't matter uh, to vote or that it doesn't matter, you might as well vote for the Greens, people whose platform I agree with, vote for them, uh, I think are as delusional about the options open to them and, and the uh, opportunities still afforded us by the amount of democracy we still have, which is less than it's sometimes in the past, less than we imagine, less than it should be. But still it does, there's enough there to give us a responsibility. And that responsibility is to take advantage of the elections that are coming up right now and do everything we can to prevent uh, the Republicans taking the House and or the Senate and, and passing election laws, among others, that give them a very great advantage for 2024. I think the importance of that is not possible to overstate. Uh, on the climate issue alone, uh, I would think the, the chances of our civilization as it exists, as we know it, surviving the climate change that will come, the difference in climate change from the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, is as delusional, I think there's no difference here, is as delusional as uh, to believe that Trump is president. And how many millions of Americans do believe that? That's something we have to face. I, I, I won't go on forever here, but I'd like to come back to that point. The fact that 60 million people did vote for Trump in the last election is extremely disturbing and it has to be seen as part of our problem. Not just what Trump is doing, but the receptivity uh, in this American uh, voting audience 
to what he's saying is is part of the problem and something we have to transcend and find out how to change. But I come back to the point, I've heard it said by, by Noam that um, uh, in, in some past elections, it's certainly progressives uh, making the point that there is a difference. It's worth 15 minutes of their time or a day of their time to vote uh, against the Republican. It always turns out and for the Democrat, despite the extreme shortcomings and, and uh, flaws uh, and crimes actually of the Democrats as well as the Republicans. Well, let's find out, but I suspect he would agree with me now and I certainly feel it's worth a lot more than a day now. We have a month ahead of us and I can't think of anything one can do for any of the causes we care about, except I have to say the foreign policy, but the other ones are of extreme importance for our species and for uh, our civilization in general and for uh, our political structure, for fascism, uh, authoritarianism, uh, rule even more egregiously than before by the 0.1%. Uh, all of these things are at stake now. And um, uh, we have a month, I think. I can't imagine something more worth doing than making sure in state by state, district by district, that Republicans do not gain control of Congress. Uh, Noam, go ahead. Well, the argument that uh, we have to send a message is, I think, correct. But the worst way to send a message that I can think of is to stab yourself in the back and say, look at this, I'm sending a message. Can you think of a worse way of sending a message? <laughs> I, I can't. Uh, there is a simple point of arithmetic that I'm afraid is unchallengeable. If you don't vote against the Republicans, you're helping them. You're basically helping them. You're depriving the opposition of the vote. That's arithmetic. You don't have to argue about that. So if you want to send a message by stabbing yourself in the back and bringing in Republican candidates, notice what you're doing. In the background, there's another question. There is a traditional left position versus which opposes the establishment position. And it seems to be forgotten. There is an establishment view, Democrat and Republican, that the be all and end all of politics is casting your vote on election day, and then you go home and they take over. That's the establishment view. There's a left view that that's barely part of politics. Politics is something that goes on all the time. Maybe you take off a couple of minutes on election day to vote against the worst guy, uh, and then you go back to work, sending your message, developing the message, organizing people, educating them, carrying out actions which provide the background in public opinion for uh, decisions made, whoever happens to be sitting there. Well, that's the left view. And I think what it dictates in this election is for the reasons that Dan mentioned, which I won't repeat, take off a couple minutes, vote against the worst guy, go back to work, produce the message, convey it, 
develop it, create the conditions under which uh, policies can be implemented, which will benefit us and, in fact, at this stage of human existence, save us from destruction. Remember, we cannot forget the fact that we're approaching a precipice. If we fall over, it's finished. The precipice is two precipices. One is nuclear war. If we enter into a nuclear war, we can say goodbye to each other. The other is slower, but devastating. It's environmental destruction. We are approaching tipping points. I've indeed passed some of them. They'll be irreversible. After that, history goes on. Everybody doesn't die at once, but it goes on to something so unlivable. You don't even want to imagine it. So just take a couple of revelations that came out in the last couple of weeks. It's been take the Middle East region, not far from Ukraine. It's been found that uh, estimates of global heating in that region have been vastly underestimated. In fact, it's about double the rate that was assumed. It's expected by the end of the century. It'll reach almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit. It's at the version, that's at the limits of survival. Meanwhile, Israeli uh, climate scientists came out a couple of weeks ago with uh, a dire estimate. They said their own estimates of the rise in sea level had been way too low. And in fact, sea level in the Eastern Mediterranean will rise a meter by mid-century, up to two and a half meters by the end of the century. Just leave it to your imagination, okay? We're approaching points where human existence will be virtually impossible. At this point, you don't send a message by saying, okay, I'm stabbing myself in the back, have a look. What you do is trying to prevent it. There's a narrow window in which it can be prevented. The Republican Party is 100% denialist. Totally, this has been going on for over a decade. Trump made it worse. Uh, they're saying anything that might save us from disaster has to be prevented. They're supported by the more savage element of the capitalist class, which is really on a roll now up to the point when they're pressing legislation to prevent, to punish for states at the state level, where it's easier to coerce legislators, to f f compel states to punish corporations that provide information about their, the effect of their investment policies, not just don't poison the atmosphere. Don't even allow them to provide information about it. That's savage capitalism gone insane. Okay, in order to preserve our profits for tomorrow, make sure the public doesn't even know that we're destroying them. This is not remote. Savage capitalism is going amok, even to the point of its lobbying organizations trying to compel states to punish corp to pun to uh, to punish states if 
they if they impose uh, require corporations to provide information about the effects of their policies not only do they, do they, can you not get them to stop the policies they're not you can't even allow them to provide information about it public must not know that the GOP and its corporate backers want to destroy you this is not a moment and this is a hundred percent of the GOP there's no exceptions it's not a time to send a message by stabbing yourself in the back it's a time to take off a couple of minutes try to block the worst get to work hard on real politics which is not only sending the message but developing it and implementing it 20 every day of the week not one day in every couple of years dan the climate issue it seems there's polling that it actually can transcend a lot of the other divisive issues that republic people that vote republican and people that vote democrat disagree about but there is some overlap on the question of climate, and there is some polling to show that a significant number, by that I mean it could be 10 to 15 percent, there's some polling even as high as 20, that people that identify as conservative Republicans do think that human-caused climate uh, crisis is a real urgency. Yet I don't see the Democrats leading with that. Why aren't they leading with do you want to elect climate deniers? Uh, it's sort of buried down in a grocery list of things that Democrats say. Uh, Dan, it seems such an obvious strategy, but I don't see them implementing it. You know, it's clear when I say there's a night and day difference between the parties' platforms. Uh, I'm talking about what Biden has actually done and, you know, what Democrats in Congress have voted for and so forth on climate. And they their programs are almost clearly inadequate, very inadequate. They won't solve the problem. Robert Poland has been telling us what could be done and what should be done, among others, uh, as an economist. But it's it's not his program that is being based. But the Republicans, as Noam has pointed out over and over again, I, I really congratulate you, Noam, on uh, your energy on this, uh, putting this out. The Republicans are reading in the opposite direction uh, toward the maximization of the uh, finding, uh, producing, uh, and burning fossil fuels in the uh, uh, in the uh, atmosphere, and leading toward the fastest rise in temperature they can. So, in terms of voting, people who care about this uh, must vote against the Republicans coming in. That will have a very great effect, but. When you say the Democrats are not pushing that, uh, which I agree, I, I notice that, they work on what they think will get them votes. They have their focus groups. They have their other groups. One can conclude, I don't think they're, they're, they're attempting to lose on this issue. Uh, whether that doesn't mean they are doing the best to win, but when it comes to an issue, I think they have to conclude it's not on the public mind. Does not, um, do not polls actually show that? That uh, even though people who will agree that there is um, uh, climate change and that it is human caused, that it is anthropogenic, 
do they regard that as one of the most urgent issues or what to vote on? My impression is very few do, that they don't. Take the Republicans who understand that. Are they going to vote for a Democrat on that basis? Uh, I don't know of any any uh, indication. I wanted. I was saying earlier, and this is very rarely said, it's a very unpopular thing to say, uh, heretical, I think, and along with my criticism of the people in the Green Party who are calling for votes from Democrats, from people who would otherwise vote Democrat, no, vote for us, Green. When I criticize that and say that in this election and in 2024, that is a very dangerous and delusional approach. I, I know that's going to be very unpopular with a lot of people listening to this program. The people who are generally allies uh, of mine, that is, I'm with them, and who understand that are very shocked by what they hear me say. Because after all, the background of this is the Green Party program, the platform, is far better on almost every issue than the Democratic platform. So they say, well, why not vote for what you really believe? And the answer is, in really existing democratic capitalism, capitalism democracy, as, as uh, I just saw that Noam has uh, given us that term. Uh, what is it? Um, really existing capitalist democracy, R-E-C-D, or RECT, as he put it. Very, uh, very good. I, I just ordered that book, uh, Noam. Uh, on, on dissent. And I also ordered last night, by the way, your book, Withdrawal. I just I was having noticed that both coming up. Okay. In the really existing capitalist democracy in America, not everywhere, in fact, not most capitalist democracies, we have a two-party system. And that does not only reflect the fact that the two parties have more money and they're better established and they get more publicity and everything. There's a reason for that. And the reason is in, in large part, that we have a system, an unusual system in the world of winner-take-all single-member districts in which a plurality uh, in the first voting wins the seat. An esoteric point in most people's minds, but it has it's been described as even a law, which is a little exaggerated, but it's a very strong tendency that in any system like that, you end up with two parties and no real prob prospect of a third party winning or have consent because they will be regarded as spoilers. And if they have any effect at all, which they don't always do, but if they have any effect, uh, it is to throw the election to the party less akin to their point of view. And can we start with the thought, well, is there a real difference? Does that matter? And I have to repeat over and over, in domestic matters, in climate, in fascism and authoritarianism. Yes, I agree with every left criticism of the Democratic Party I've ever heard. And uh, I'm on that. And I, I'm feeding myself, I know, but I think it has to be said. To say that the Republicans are no worse on these matters, aside from foreign policy here, which is, after all, my own personal focus and defense and nuclear matters, I have to say, with great dismay, there isn't that much difference. But on other matters, yes, you have to, uh, you really should effort. And not just on election day, I would say, yes, of course I agree with no. What you do the rest of the year is of the greatest importance. And the, the way we should, what our lives right. should be devoted for. 
but it is worth, I will say, more than election day, that for this coming month, I really can't think of anything more important to do than to try to help people, progressives, get to the polls, be willing to vote, and to vote for a Democrat over a Republican, not for a Green uh, in where there's a close election in these swing states. Right. Uh, no, uh, you know, while in principle I agree uh, with what Dan's saying, uh, don't we also, as we're doing this, have to educate uh, workers and ordinary people about the underlying causes for this uh, malignancy of a Republican Party? But I, like I've called it a, a malignant cancer on a cancerous, systemically cancerous body. So, yeah, you got to deal with the malignancy. But the underlying cancer is what's happening with capitalism in the United States. Uh, so I mean, what, what's your take, Noam, on how you talk electorally at the same time, educate people about the under, systemic forces at play here? It's exactly the left position, the traditional left position that I was describing. Politics is not something confined to one day in November every couple of years. That's the establishment position. Should not accept that. Our position should be politics is what you're doing all the time. Part of that is trying to educate and organize people about the fundamental deep problems of the society of the state capitalist order, work on that all the time. We do not obsess about the question of what to do for 15 minutes on November 8th. The answer to that is straightforward. Spend those 15 minutes trying to get the worst guy out, not helping them, not by helping them, not by sending a message by stabbing yourself in the back, that's not the thing to do in those 15 minutes. It's to say, okay, let's get rid of the worst guy before they kill us and then get back to work doing exactly what she said. So why, for example, is our working people voting for somebody who is destroying them? Well, let's go take a look at that. Who are they? Um, there are studies, careful studies, mostly rural people, uh, the kind of people who were dying from excess deaths, uh, mortality is increasing among them, the wives are collapsing, their jobs have been lost, they're the victims of neoliberal globalization, which is designed in such a way as to deindustrialize the country and to provide massive fortunes to uh, financial capital and other capitalist exploiters. So let's be told, we're not going to get the Democrats to tell them that. We have to. We have to be organizing in such a way as to get people to understand the sources of the malignancy that's destroying their lives. That's our job if we think we're on the left all the time, not for five minutes on November 8th. Build up the kinds of pressures which maybe will get elements of the Democratic Party to pursue the same objective. And there are elements there. Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, others. So let's support them in, and they'll support us in a joint effort 
to try to develop programs that will get people in the working class and the poor to understand where their interests are, to see policies, present, develop policies that will help them uh, proceed to a better future. And there are very concrete examples of that. Let's go back to the climate crisis. Dan mentioned that uh, Bob Poland, convert fine economist, uh, has provided careful programs, detailed programs that could, in a very feasible way, overcome the basic crisis we're facing. But it's important to recognize that he's gone far beyond that. He's gone on to local organizing, and it's had effects. So in West Virginia, major coal state, the United Mine Workers has accepted a transition program, which would lead to moving miners from the destructive activities in which they're engaged towards better jobs in sustainable energy with training, uh, uh, development of uh, supportive programs, they've accepted them. Uh, now, the Democratic Party didn't do it, but local organizing and uh, working with the mine workers and their union did do it. Same thing happened in California and Ohio. Uh, you're not gonna, you don't ask the Democrats, why don't you do this? You do it on the ground with organizing just the way Bob is doing it. Well, is it enough? Obviously not. So let's do it more and better. That's what we should be doing. It seems to me that the untold or very little discussed real story of the events of January 6th on Capitol Hill was the role of uh, Christian nationalism, uh, mostly white Christian nationalism, but there's some of it that isn't white. Uh, but it, how serious is this as a threat that you could actually, in a real way in the United States, see a Christian theocratic, Christian theocratic, overtly authoritarian state emerge in the next just two to four years? How serious is that? Very serious. In fact, Republicans have made it very clear that that's what they're aiming for. It's not a secret. Uh, take the recent uh, conferences in Budapest and then Dallas. There was a conference in Budapest a couple months ago of uh, uh, the right-wing parties and forces in Europe meeting in Budapest because Viktor Orban has established, has succeeded in openly, publicly undermining democracy, moving towards establishing a Christian nationalist, racist state with, uh, with, with an end to a democratic functioning. Well, the big participant in that was the core of the Republican Party, Conservative Political Action Conference, core of the Republican Party, major participants, uh, Donald Trump, major speech, Lauding Orban, the voice of the future, and so on. Uh, Tucker Carlson practically worships him. It's uh, the right wing. Republicans love it. Followed right away a couple of weeks later by a conference in Dallas organized by the Conservative Political Action Conference. Keynote speaker, uh, most revered uh, participant is Viktor Orban. 
publicly, openly saying, yes, we want a Christian nationalist racist state. Same in the Supreme Court. The most outspoken is Alito. He doesn't hide it. He makes it very clear, not only his judgments, but his talks at the Vatican and elsewhere, pretty much says outright, yes, we have to move back to Christian nationalism, the core of uh, the Constitution, uh, the country as he understands it, pretty straight. Uh, so there's no secrets about it. And for somebody like Trump, who's a skilled demigod, he doesn't have any principles except me, but he's a skilled demigod, understands that these are ugly currents running undercurrents in American culture and history, and he can tap them for his benefit. So while he's passing legislation that is devastating workers, he's saying, don't look at that. Look over there. Uh, over there, I'm supporting you in racism, uh, white nationalism, Christianity, uh, keeping, blocking the Democrats from bringing in these uh, prisoners and racists to try to destroy the white race. Yeah, that's what you have. And you don't appeal to the Democratic Party to counter that. You do it by direct organizing among those people. The people who are susceptible to this, say, people in rural communities that are collapsing, where the young people have left, the stores are closed, and no jobs, uh, middle-aged people are dying on drugs. What you do is present them with programs for their benefit, developing like what Pollen did in West Virginia, programs that can offer them a way out of the uh, class war that's been waged against them for the last four years. It can be done. Gave an example, there are others. Uh, maybe someday it'll move on to developing an authentic independent party, the way Tony Mazaki tried to do, to model, to look at. You go back to the early 70s, the, the most advanced environmentalists, cutting edge of the environmentalist movement, were Tony Mazaki's union of uh, oil, atomic, and chemical workers, right in the front lines of destruction. They were leading the way in environmentalism, pressing Congress to pass laws to protect miners and others. Uh, Tony Mazaki himself was pretty strongly anti-capitalist, didn't hide it, went on to try to develop a labor party, which could have spoken for these far-reaching views, the one you raised. Well, didn't quite make it, but it wasn't because of the Democrats, because there wasn't enough, of course, they're not going to support it. It was because of lack of public support and organization. And this happens all the time. Let me give you another example. 2008, huge uh, uh, recession, a uh, deep recession. Uh, Obama basically nationalized the auto industry, came pretty close to that. It was collapsing, so the government bought it out almost entirely. Well, there were options. One option, the one that was taken, hand it back to the former owners, uh, get them to go back to producing more traffic jams and pollution. That's one option. Other option, hand it over to the workers in the communities, have them produce the kind of thing the country needs, like efficient mass 
transportation, if there had been public pressure, public organization, if we had done our jobs, not the Democrat uh, politicians, they're not going to do it. If we had done our jobs, organizing public to pressure this could happen. Be a different country. Okay, these things come up all the time. So we know what to do. You don't say, Democrats, please do something for us. You set up conditions in which they have to do things for you or you do it yourself. And it can be done. I mean, take something as simple as the last legislative session, the Build Back Better bill. The polls were kind of interesting. They showed that on the individual measures, people supported them, but they opposed the bill. Well, that's a lack of education. It's saying uh, you think the bill is just uh, elites, rich elites uh, coming after you and forcing you on, forcing something else on, on you that you don't want. Well, you don't expect the Democrats, this obvious thing for the Democrats to do was to have people vote, Congress vote on each issue. But the Democratic leaders are not going to do that. They don't want to expose the whole system. But with public pressure, it could have been done. And maybe that bill would have gotten through. Well, that's politics on the left, not what you do for five minutes on November 8th. There it's obvious. Just vote against the worst guys and then get back to work. Uh, Dan, do you anything you want to add? Obviously, we don't have here a great disagreement between me and Noam. Noam is my mentor for decades here. When I say I bought two of his books in the last 24 hours, it's because I learned from no one else uh, as well. As from, I'll, I'll say for them, but it's called Notes on Dissent and Withdrawal. And he, it so happens he publishes faster than I can read. And I just want to extend I, I only wish I could do that, but he doesn't. Obviously, I, I would say I agree with everything that he says. Um, but my attention has been directed a little elsewhere since Charlottesville, which really caught me up uh, in 2017 at the spectacle of young Americans look same as that crowd you opened the program with in Madison Square Garden. This, by the way, there's... <laughs> uh, let me give a historical note. Like Noam, I'm so old. He, I'm 91, he's 93. I've never seen this. But when I was in grade school, and I would imagine this is true of Noam too, um, we took a pledge of allegiance to the flag. It wasn't yet under God that came in under Eisenhower later. This was in the uh, 30s, actually. I was born in 31. And before the war, our pledge of allegiance to the flag, we pointed toward the flag, we got pledge of allegiance to the flag in America. And the gesture was this. It was this. And uh, that looks so reminiscent of the Nazi salute that we were seeing in the newsreels starting uh, 39 and 40, that it had to be changed to over this. I've never done this because I was out of grade school by the time that happened. So the idea of a salute like that is uh, has its American roots in a way as a, a pledge of allegiance to a flag. That's very American. I don't know who else does that. And uh, I, my understanding is historically, that that was pressed by the largest flag maker in America, coincidentally, who got a flag into every classroom. Okay, so 
you do see, though, these people were not doing like this. They were doing like this. They, it was a Nazi salute. And um, uh, could, how could that be happening today? I was wondering, Jews will not replace us. First time I'd heard that, what Noam was referring to, the replacement theory, that Jews are in particular in the vanguard of those Democrats and progressives who are bringing other races into the country to steal votes and to vote for them and so forth. A, and again, knowing the delusional vulnerability of people. But are the Republicans still be putting these ideas into those people's heads? Wait a minute. Those same people used to be Democrats. And that's when, uh, no, again, Noam and I were, were young, we were alive, when the Democrats were this party of white supremacy in the South, then known as the Solid South or Democrats. And what happened when, uh, late in my life, 33, when Lyndon um, Johnson signs the Civil Rights Bill, the, uh, the voting bill, 65, uh, 64 and 65, the white supremacists simply left the Democratic Party. First, they went to George Wallace uh, in 68. And then uh, when Wallace became shot before running as an independent against Nixon, they went to Nixon. Listen, since then, it's it's been the Republicans who do that. It used to be the Democrats. Now, those people were there all the time. And what I'm saying is, and again, this is, this is something I feel I've learned late in life here. And I say, really starting to learn. I learned more about the Civil War and roots of it and the post-Civil War, the Jim Crow period that I grew up in, uh, in the last five years than I knew in my previous uh, 80 years. And it's not, it's uh, disillusioning, but I, about my country and my species in a broader sense, in the tribalism uh, and um, racism and misogyny and patriarchy and so forth. It's been character, perhaps not for most of our life as humans, but for the last 10,000 years, pretty much. Uh, and the, the age of empire and civilization, as Stanley Diamond, the anthropologist, started his book, The Search for the Primitive, I remember, with a sentence, civilization, and he's referring to the rise of agriculture, uh, uh, and class society in general, um, and wars and empire. Civilization begins with repression at home and expansion abroad. And his book is not a peon, you know, uniformly civilization. Okay, come right back to the to America. Uh, the the Republicans didn't invent the idea of racism in this society. I think it used to be a democratic um, property of their campaigns in my lifetime. Um, the fact is, the unhappy part, it's not just a matter of educating these, uh, these people to perceive their class interests, I, I have to say. Um, this, this will be a little difference in emphasis from, from Noam, because for a large part of our population, um, they either understand the, the class part and find it overruled in priority by racism and misogyny, by, by the necessity to restore and protect their status in society 
and this is uh, rich and poor to some extent, uh, as not being at the bottom of society, there's always somebody below them. Blacks, brown, yellow, and women. And uh, to challenge that, not that these people are getting ahead of them, but the idea that they are their equal. That in the South, what was it that led poor people without slaves, whites, the vast majority of the Confederate forces to fight and die, kill their, their relatives and die in huge numbers, hundreds of thousands, um, in order to protect a society in which economically they were very low. They didn't have slaves, they weren't based on this, but they were willing to fight and die at that time uh, to reject the idea that African-American, Black people listen, were their equal. And their social equal, their political equal, no, that was a, a an issue that trumped their economic their economic motives, and it turns out uh, that's still pretty true today. So, uh, one other point: uh, President uh, President at the time John Adams said at the time of the Revolution, you know, one third is a different issue from racism. Somewhat different, not altogether. Uh, one third of the country supported the Revolution. And one third uh, supported the king, wanted to stay in the empire. And a third uh, didn't care, were indifferent on this. And that meant two thirds of the country were willing to live under a king. And uh, I think that's always been true. What we're seeing right now, we're seeing a good part of the country uh, wanting to elect a king, yeah, manager of the empire in any case, whether they realize it or not. But a monarch, uh, not bound by a legislature or a court or they run or, or international law or anything. Yeah, a lot of Americans like those in the revolutionary times thought that was just fine. And another third, why not? What's the difference? And uh, if, if it's a third that is really against that, I'd be glad to hear it. In short, as my, I have a friend, uh, William Gibson, playwright. Uh, very, very popular playwright, uh, who said to me once, sometimes it's the audience that's the flop. Meaning, we really, what we have to understand, the reality out here of actually existing, really existing capitalist democracy, is that a lot of our fellow nationals are have no great uh, resistance to the authoritarian rule of a fascist society or to a racist. They're very receptive to that and it takes priority if they feel that that is being challenged. Uh, political correctness drives them crazy. The idea of being called a racist uh, seems to drive racists crazy. They hate that. Uh, but, uh, uh, or, and as you say, uh, sexism, women, Question of women. Uh, you notice that we did have a black president before we had a woman president, we have, which we haven't had yet, or, or let alone a Jewish president, uh, one of us. I think the closest we came to that was Goldwater, Oiga Vault, <laughs> but Gore's uh, vice president. But uh, I think that was not an accident, actually. You know, women had to break against them. Now, it's not that women are the solution. 
enough to be a woman. Look at Liz Truss. Look at uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher before her. Um, Theresa May, noting, by the way, Britain has had three in recent times, women. Uh, that didn't solve the problems. The Democrats are not going to solve any of these problems as they are now. Actually existing Democratic Party is not going to do it. So I want to take maybe a little difference in this. I absolutely agree with Noam on that point. How could you not? Uh, they're uh, not only not sufficient to get Democrats in, you've got all the problems ahead of you still if you have Democrats in, all the problems we've been looking at. But uh, it, it is necessary to have current Democrats in versus the current Republicans. And no one has been more forthright in characterizing the crazy fascistic delusional Republican Party than no, that's where it is now. So it's necessary. No, absolutely not. So all the things that Enoma uh, is talking about are essential for us progressives who want to do better and want to save the world. It really is at stake right now in a way that uh, we never perceived it as being in my lifetime before. But uh, for some time now, uh, everything is, is really at stake. And we've got to do better than the current Democrats. And I'll tell you this, we've actually got to do better than humans have done before in the past. We've got to call out possibilities in humanity and our fellow species here. The thing no nation has really exhibited adequately in the past. Is that conceivable? Well, it's conceivable. Is it really possible? It's not impossible. That's where we really are. I can't say a lot more than that. You can't, you absolutely cannot demonstrate that what can clearly be achieved by our educational efforts, by our mobilization efforts on an individual basis, in a group basis, in a union basis. You can't prove that it's impossible to extend that to a society. So you're changing the institutions. I do want to say one thing very specific in, in October 2000. And that is a third party is not part of the solution so long as we have our system of single district winner take all uh, voting. You're not going to get an effective third party, right. even if you work hard at it, even if you want it. Uh, it's not going to happen. Can that change? Yes, I think Maine has changed that. Uh, Nevada may have changed that. I'm not sure. Various principalities, various cities and so forth have changed. If you want a third party, you can change that system. But before that, it's no use acting as though we'd already changed it. Before that, third party isn't going to be the answer. I think there may be a historic opportunity for workers uh, in this coming few years, uh, which is the global uh, globalization and the ability of American capital to use cheap Chinese and Asian labor to weaken American unions and lower wages. Uh, the pandemic has shown that that global supply chain can break down very easily. And it seems to have thrown a, a shaken American capital that this whole globalization they so depended on, a, a major part of that being the ability to keep American workers weak. 
uh, it's, that may be unraveling, uh, including with the rising tension with China. Uh, you can see it in a rising militancy uh, of the workers and, and the strikes and the or increased uh, organizing that's going on. And I, I personally cannot see a movement of the kind you've been talking about, you know, in terms of organizing, not depending on elections. I don't see that happening without a revival of trade unions and, and an increase of militancy and, politi and political action. Which is happening that we can say happily. That's, that's a wonderful what's happening in Amazon and uh, Starbucks. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interjecting here, but I remember being known yeah. sage. Norman, I remember the Taft-Hartley bill. And that came at a time, a year later, I joined the United Auto Workers at 17. My father had to give permission and he was a Republican at the time, but my hero was Walter Ruther. And I was going into a life of labor organizing or as a labor economist, which I studied at Harvard, labor economics. But Taft-Hartley drove that so much into the ground and they, the failure of Operation Dixie in the South the UAW and CIO trying to organize the South, which failed on racism. Uh, at that point, I, I got out of labor economics. But also, I'm just saying, if we want to look for a sign of light in this, I really am happy to see what's happening in the labor organizing that's going on now. Yeah, no, my, why can you speak to that? Because I, I agree. I think there really is a ray of light here. And uh, as dim as, you know, the the... The election prospects may or may not be. There's something going on in, in the American working class. Yes. One of the advantages of uh, reaching 94 years old pretty soon is to have memory of what happened in the early 30s. In the 1920s, it was very similar to today. The labor movement had been almost totally crushed by Woodrow Wilson's repression, the worst in American history. And not just labor unions were crushed, but uh, independent thought was crushed. Uh, fantastic raging inequality. It was savage capitalism at its limits. And that was the 1920s. The 1930s, when my memories begin, labor began to reconstitute. CIO organizing began. Uh, uh, militant labor actions, uh, sit-down strikes, which were a major threat to capital because they're just, just a step before saying, we don't need you guys, we can run this place ourselves. Uh, at that point, there were political organizations. My own family was first-generation immigrants, working class, lots of political, lively activities. At that point, there was a administration, that was crucial. Uh, but uh, big capital backed off, said Supreme Court stopped blocking everything, started letting reforms go through. Pretty soon you had the New Deal legislations, which had plenty of flaws, but made an enormous difference from American life. Uh, and in fact, pioneered the kind of social democracy that took off in Europe in the post-war years. Business world didn't like it. It kind of uh, held off during the Second World War, but immediately after the war, as Dan just said, came in fighting to try to crush it. Taft-Hartley was in 1947, 
in major business campaigns, try to beat back New Deal reforms. Uh, briefly, by the 1970s, they were able to exploit a, a economic problems to say, okay, now we can race ahead and just institute militant class war, brains or, you know, everything off, do what you like. That's Reagan and Thatcher and on. Well, we're now in a situation where they're like the 20s, but the same thing that can happen that was happening then. You couldn't have predicted in the 20s that you would have a militant labor organization moving towards significant social democracy, but it happened. And why not again? In fact, what's happening right now is very interesting. The leading forces in labor organization are not coming from the unions, like uh, teachers in West Virginia and Arizona, non-unionized red states are saying, we're opposing the destruction of education, not just we want better wages, which we badly deserve. Wages for teachers have gone way down relatively, uh, but not just that, we want proper conditions for children, not 50 kids in a room, no arts and sports sections, no nurses, no training for jobs. We don't want that. We want real education. They're getting enormous popular support. Arizona, where I live, legislature, very reactionary. Uh, referenda are showing that the population supports the teachers. The legislator knocks it down. They want to destroy the public education system, just as the Supreme Court does. They're making that very clear. They want to destroy this system, which was actually an American-initiated system, mass popular education, the major advance in democracy. Now the right wing wants to destroy it. We don't want any of that democracy nonsense. But it's people like teachers, nurses, service workers, sometimes unionized, sometimes not, who've been in the lead in these revivals. Now it's picking up in other uh, actions as well. How far can it go? It's not something you speculate about. It's something you participate in. Let's get involved. And in, I mean, I can't, you know, organize teachers, but uh, whatever we can do in our own ways, let's try to encourage these developments, bring whatever resources we have that might help them, and uh, not wait for the Democrats to do it. We just go ahead and do it. And that could lead to the, and I think the revival of labor is going to be essential for trying to move forward. Like what I mentioned about West Virginia miners. Yes, they're very important. When they start taking part in transition programs, that can make a difference. And uh, they can be very militant. Take West Virginia, long history of militant labor action. It's not very far in the background. People can remember their grandparents, you know, it was a union state. Uh, the same in uh, uh, oil workers in California or Ohio. Traditions there can be revived, adapted to modern conditions, such things as sustainability, such things as what I suggested about the auto industry, taking it over. In fact, Bob Pollan pointed out recently, just looking at the numbers, 
that the government could nationalize the fossil fuel industry at not a great cost, not in order to run it like uh, Saudi Arabia, but in order to get working people to participate in running it so that they would move it towards the kind of sustainable energy and better communities that they themselves want and need. That's not an impossible utopia. That's not utopian either. A lot of these things are imaginable, possibly within reach, but that's what we should be engaged in. Then the Demo either the Democrats will come along or some kind of Labour Party will replace them. Uh, in terms of the workers having more confidence uh, and militancy, uh, which I think is a reflection of this weakening of globalization, you can see in spite of the fact there's far less workers organized than there were a few decades ago. The working class still has incredible power. Look what, how, uh, what would have happened if the railroad workers had gone on strike, the amount of leverage they had. Imagine the port workers of Los Angeles going on strike. Uh, and if, if this militancy has a political side to it, uh, there, there's real power there. Uh, so as you were saying earlier, Noam, it's not just all about elections, but I agree with Dan. It's also about elections. You can't discount it. Um, anyway, any final words from either of you? I don't want to endorse what Dan said before, which I thought was exactly on target. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you both for, for joining me. And uh, let's do this again soon. Thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Again, please don't forget the donate button. Uh, come over to the website if you're not there already and sign up on the email list and subscribe if you're on YouTube and all, you know, all the various buttons. Uh, thanks for joining us on the analysis.news.